Thank you, friends. We are indeed in Acts chapter 15. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, I tell you, if you ever doubted that the Lord has a sense of humor, doubt it no more, because your pastor is going to preach on conflict. Can you imagine? That's like asking Bobby Knight to get up here and preach a sermon on patience. Because I am a man of conflict. I've been in conflict. I am currently in conflict. If Jesus should tarry any longer, I will continue to be in conflict. I've created conflict because of my sin. I've responded in conflict because of other people's sin. Sometimes I'm in conflict where sin's not the issue. Strategy is the issue, and we're hashing out strategy together. I've entered into conflict because no one in the room will say the thing that needs to be said, so I'll say that thing, and then I become the person in conflict. And when conflict hits the fan... There are days that I exhibit the spirit-filled patience of Job against backbiters and slanderers, and you would be proud to call me pastor. And there are a lot of other days where I am the backbiter and the slanderer. No wonder when the elders did my review for 2021, they said, this is a chief point to grow in. It is conflict and how you do conflict and how you do conflict well. So when I get up to preach on conflict, I've got enemies in the city that are thinking, you're going to preach on conflict? And I've got elders in the church saying, you're going to preach on conflict? But... Whereas most weeks, I would love to get up here and preach about something that I'm good at and y'all need to work on. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to preach on something that I sorely need to grow in, and that's what expository preaching does, doesn't it? I don't get to pick my favorite topics. We march through chapter by chapter, and it falls on me like a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I got cut this week, and may the Lord do that work in all of us. So I'm going to read for us from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cecilia, strengthening the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would do that dividing work the sword of your spirit only so that you can mend and heal and grow us together as a body and as the family of Christ, closer in our unity because of your spirit. You can do that, and it would be a miracle. And so we ask in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, just very simply in our passage, we have a fight. 
And then we have the fallout from that fight. And then shockingly, we actually have some fruit that comes out of the entire conflict. So we're going to look at each of those in turn, starting with the fight. Now, I want you to hold Acts 15 in your minds. We preached on the first half two weeks ago because at the beginning of the chapter, you have this incredible unity. And then at the end of the chapter, you have this sad disunity. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, it was a miracle because the global church, they came together and they had to wrestle through an important issue of how you receive Gentiles into the church. And it was miraculous to see the unity after such long debate. This is how we will move forward together. And the church in one accord proceeds. And it's a beautiful thing to behold. Only to end the chapter with a powerhouse missionary duo that parts ways never to work together again. Does it surprise you that conflict comes on the heels of a spiritual high? That the enemy prowls around on the far side of spiritual mountaintops to attack us? Is that a surprise to you? Satan is like Goldilocks and the three bears, right? He comes into your spiritual life and when he sees you on a mountaintop in sweet communion with the Lord, he thinks this porridge is too hot. I'm not gonna touch this. This person is in communion with the Lord. He walks away. He finds you in the low valley where you are apathetic and resisting the Lord and he says, this porridge is too cold. Why waste my time? But then there's that ripe moment where you have just seen the Lord work, you've communed with him deeply, you've had this wonderful experience with him, you're coming down off that mountaintop experience into the mundane of regular Christian spirituality, and that's when the porridge is just right, and Satan says, I got you. That's when he comes. So in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas, their team teaching in Antioch, we assume all winter long, they can't travel anywhere. What would it have been like to be in a Bible study with Paul and Barnabas, like to join their growth group and hear them teach for the entire winter? That would have been incredible. But at the end of that, verse 36, Paul says, hey, let's do this. We just went on our first missionary journey. We just planted a bunch of churches. What if we went back through that entire area and strengthened the churches that we planted? And Barnabas says, that's a great idea. Let's take John Mark with us. Now, you read that exchange in the ESV, and after looking at some commentaries and some translations, I realized that the ESV, it kind of softens the exchange between the two of them. It kind of sounds like Barnabas says, hey, what if we did it this way? And Paul says, hey, what if we don't? It almost reads like a couple who's trying to have a fight in front of their kids. You ever seen that? Your parents do that? It's like, hey, dear, I thought you were picking the kids up from school. No, dear, I thought you were going to do it. You know I had a big project. Well, dear, it seems like every week you have a big project. You know, you're angry, but you're in front of the kids, so you keep it subdued. That's how this reads, because it's Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take one who had withdrawn, so they had a sharp disagreement. You could translate that, Barnabas had already made up his mind to take John Mark, but Paul kept insisting it best not to take one who had deserted them, so they had a fight. That's how you could read this thing. 
Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over the all-important question to the truth and justice people in the room like myself, who's right? Who's right and who's wrong? Who's on the Lord's side in this and who is opposing the Lord's work? Who's right between Paul and Barnabas? And it's amazing that that's not really Luke's point and he doesn't really go into it any further than this and we're kind of left to wonder. They're arguing about John Mark. John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. And when they went on their first missionary journey, John Mark hopped on that team. He went to Cyprus. He went through the whole island of Cyprus. And when that was done and they were about to cross over into Galatia, that's when John Mark in Acts 13, 13 just bounced and he went home and he was done. He withdrew. He deserted the team. So I actually get Barnabas's point I mean, yeah, John Mark is a work in progress, but so was Paul when Barnabas first found him, right? Nobody wants to work with John Mark. Nobody wanted to work with Paul, but it took Barnabas to grab Paul and bring him along. Maybe it takes Barnabas to grab John Mark and bring him along. Maybe what this young, untested leader needs is some more encouragement, and who best to do that but the son of encouragement himself, Barnabas. I get his point. He wants to take John Mark. But then I also get Paul's point too because it's not like John Mark had an off day or preached a lousy sermon. He actually deserted the team at the hardest part of their ministry just when things were heating up. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight and you don't bring a flaky intern to the lion's den of ministry in Galatia where people are getting stoned. So I get it. Paul doesn't want to take him. And I get it, Barnabas wants to take him. All that to say, I don't think this is a sin issue per se, but a strategy issue. I think you got two believers filled with the Holy Spirit. They both have a different sense on what we should do and how we should do it, and they disagree. But of course, a strategy issue can become a sin issue depending on how we handle it together. If this sharp disagreement was harsh, unkind, uncharitable, called into question each other's character or commitment to the mission, it leaked behind closed doors in gossip that told the story with a spin or it became a grudge that festered, well then the original conversation about the strategy for God's kingdom hardly matters because we took a left turn out of the kingdom of heaven miles ago. I just read in my Bible 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning where Paul, the man in this conflict, then writes to the church in Corinth later on who themselves are having a conflict and he says the worst thing that you could possibly say to a room full of believers who are born again, filled in the spirit, living out their lives in this new spiritual creation that they are, Paul says to the church in Corinth, y'all are acting like a bunch of human beings. Can you believe that? People that are filled with the spirit, have new life in the spirit, you're acting like the flesh, you're acting like a human being. That kind of looks like what Paul and Barnabas are doing here. So they have a fight and then they have this fallout. We don't get 
details into the fight, but we do hear the fallout in verse 39. They separated from each other. So Barnabas says, I'm going to have it my way. And he takes John Mark and he goes to Cyprus. And Paul says, I'm going to have it my way. And he takes Silas and he goes off to Syria. And we have no evidence that Paul or Barnabas work together ever again. It's like you want to linger on verse 35, that winter in Antioch, when they taught the Bible together, and you just want to hang out there because you have two precious brothers doing the Lord's ministry together, and could they have known that it would end in this way? This is huge. Paul and Barnabas have been together in ministry ever since Barnabas went to fetch Paul and bring him to Jerusalem to give him credibility back in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas vouched for Paul, whether he was the discipler or trainer of Paul or just the man that was vouching for him. When we hear about this duo, they are always introduced as Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul. It's the mentor and the mentee until we get to chapter 13 in the book of Acts and their names switch and it becomes almost always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, the mentee outshines the mentor. And you've got this scene in Acts chapter 14 that's wild where the people of Lystra, they think that Paul and Barnabas are Greek gods and so they mistake Barnabas for Zeus because he's back in the corner and they mistake Paul for Hermes because he's the chief speaker and I wonder, as terrible as that moment was, if that was a moment of pride for Barnabas to watch the man he vouched for emerge as the chief speaker of the team doing the Lord's work. In fact, I wonder if going on from there after that time, they kind of use those as nicknames for each other. That's Hermes, that's Zeus. This is what, what God has done through this relationship between these two men. But oh Christian, the grief of believers who divide. Even as I say that, I know that our minds are moving towards the conflict that we have in our life now or in the past. And it's one thing to have conflict outside of the church when we don't share the spirit of God, but it's a whole other thing to have conflict in the church where we both claim the same things and we both serve the same God and we both are filled with the same spirit. That is a wound that can fester in our lives. We are called in Christ as the church. We are family. We're a temple being built together brick by brick. We are one spiritual nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice and righteousness for all. And oh, how Satan delights when the children of light divide into darkness. Now, I need to make a caveat here as we think about division because not all conflict is the same and not all division is the same, right? There is good conflict and bad conflict. There is right and just division and there is unholy division. If I divide over personal preferences, over not getting my way, 
over not getting the attention or recognition I think I deserve, over petty squabbles, over the color of the carpet, over the coffee that we serve, then woe to me as a believer who causes division. But if I divide over doctrine or over unchecked sin or over poisonous leadership or team dynamics or over a commitment to the Great Commission, then may the Lord see and know and guide. Division is awful, but not every division is of the devil. So you got to fight and you got the fallout and then... Whereas we would think the story would be over, in God's economy, that's where the story is just beginning. He's actually going to bear some fruit. I want you to see God's grace in a new and special way today because we hear that it's new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. There are different infinite facets to this grace. This is just another one to see. Because we live today in a cancel culture where if you make one foul move, you say something I don't agree with, I'm going to cancel you, shame you, talk about you. You are going to be pushed away from me. You're not in my circle anymore. And we do that so much to each other. We just kind of subconsciously assume that God would treat us that way, that he would cancel us. And we're always surprised when he doesn't. Like he gave Paul and Barnabas one simple job to do. Join hands, go tell the world about Jesus, and they failed to do it. And in this moment, it would seem that God has every right to put Paul and Barnabas on the shelf of ministry has-beens and go do his kingdom work through people who are actually going to take him seriously. And maybe in your life, and maybe in my life, we've seen places, sin, conflict, issues, selfishness, where it feels like God has every right to do that to us too, take us and put us on the shelf and then begin building his kingdom through the rest of the people in this room who are actually taking him and his gospel seriously. We fear that we could be ruled out by God. And if that's you, welcome to the fellowship of the fallen, the broken, the limping, the divided, the sinful vessels in this room, that's actually the only kind of person God uses because that's the only kind of person in the building. If God only used people who disqualified themselves, we would have to empty this room and start fresh with new believers. But that's not what God does in his economy He has a place for every single one of us, sinner and sinner alike. Look at verse 40. In verse 40, Paul and Silas, it says, are commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, I've been chewing on that phrase all week, and I'm I'm sure there are two different ways to take this. Number one, there's a way to read that as a stamp of approval for Paul. So Barnabas goes one way, and we don't hear that kind of commendation for Barnabas, but Paul goes the other way, and it might sound like the church is saying, great job about the whole John Mark thing, Paul. We're behind you. Get out there. Keep doing what you're doing, right? It could sound like a stamp of approval for what Paul has done and experienced, but there's a second way to read that as Paul's absolute 
desperate need for that kind of grace. In other words, Paul, that was really sad and that was really awkward. And I know you're gonna limp out of here and go on to do more ministry, but you're not gonna forget about Barnabas and the things you said to him and the things he said to you. And so because of that, we want to commend you to the grace of the Lord because that will be the only thing that can hold you and sustain you in this life. And just look at what the grace of the Lord can do. You read this little clip, this little scene, and it's kind of like when you watch a, a film based on history, and when, when the credits roll, you get to hear what those characters did after the movie, what did they go on to do. That's what, when you read this scene, you continue through the New Testament, and you see those characters get highlighted again. What did Paul and Silas go on to do? Paul, of course, he continues on in the book of Acts, blundering through church planting throughout the Mediterranean world. God still has work for him to do in his grace. Silas, the guy that Paul grabbed, he actually comes alongside of Paul, gets his first rodeo in this experience, and then he goes on to be a stalwart leader in the church. And get this, that rascally, flaky intern, John Mark, actually grows into a dependable leader in the church. Peter calls him my son. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul tells Timothy, ironically, everybody has deserted me. A bunch of people have deserted me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. The deserter will come and bring me company when all have deserted. Behold the grace and the glory of God. Isn't that incredible? And then Barnabas. He all but disappears after this. We don't really read about him again. He's mentioned in Galatians, referring back to this. But other than that, his name disappears. But you have to wonder... Would you ever have gotten a dependable version of John Mark had you not had the Barnabas in the first place grab him, give him a second chance, and then watch him shine? Behold the grace of God taking crooked sticks and drawing straight lines. This is what he does in his kingdom. I was sitting down with a friend a little while ago who had recently come to faith and he was like a man shot out of a cannon telling everybody what Jesus had done for him. He couldn't but share with friends and neighbors and guys that he used to run with and explain the gospel to them and he was thrilled to be a witness for Christ until a couple months into his conversion he relapsed into an old addiction and he just got quiet right? Because who wants to go tell people about Jesus and feel like a hypocrite? And I leaned across the table and said, brother, this is the moment that you begin to talk about Jesus. It's not that little window of sobriety where people couldn't relate to you. It is now in the thick of sin that you have a story to tell, that you are pointing not to your righteousness, but to Jesus and his righteousness, and you are proclaiming a kingdom where the unrighteous belong, and there is hope and faith and healing in this kingdom. 
This is not news about righteous people doing righteous things righteously in God's kingdom. This is the story of unrighteous people being drawn in, given an alien righteousness that is not our own, and being set off to work within this kingdom. That's what God does. You ever see those infomercials with beautiful people who are given a quirky piece of workout equipment and then they just like stretch the bands for five minutes, you know, and you think for a second, maybe if I buy those bands, I can look like that person. And then you think, wait a minute, all that piece of equipment did was take a beautiful tan toned person and make them beautiful tan toned while stretching bands. I mean, this is a gimmick, right? That's not the kingdom. That's not what we're here to do. That's not what this church is full of. We don't take beautiful tan-toned people and see them be beautiful tanned and toned. We take the least of these. We take the broken. We take those who are constantly dividing one from another. We take those steeped in conflict. We take those steeped in addiction and we join hands together and God gives us this unlikeliest of tasks, the great commission to join hand in hand with fellow sinner and divider and to send us out and then the fireworks start between one and another and even so God says let my grace be demonstrated in this that as you go from here and fall flat on your face you will see the grace of the Lord Jesus pick you up again and again and again and then you will be my light to the world thanks be to God let's pray Heavenly Father take us, Lord, as broken vessels. Lord, I pray you take those of us who think we're whole vessels and show the cracks within us and show us the ways deep inside of our hearts that we betray you and your mission. And once again, will you heal us, restore us, forgive us, bind us up so that when we boast, we have nothing to boast of in ourselves, but only in the precious whole grace of God. Do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.